0: You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, President of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. It's a great pleasure to welcome all of our listeners back uh, for a new episode of The Zeitgeist. And we are particularly honored uh, this time to have with us Cecilia Malmstrom. She is currently a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. By the way, that building is our next door neighbor here in Washington, DC. She is also a visiting professor at the University of Gothenburg. Uh, But I would say her claim to fame, perhaps, um, uh, goes back to her time as the European Union's commissioner for trade, a position she held from 2014 to 2019. And for those who don't follow the EU as closely, uh, that is the equivalent of a ministerial position. Um, And of course, in the European Union, it's the commission that has the responsibility for trades. Uh, Indeed, the commissioner uh, is is quite an important figure. Before that, Cecilia Malmström has held other um, cabinet level positions, including as EU commissioner for home affairs, Swedish minister for EU affairs. And uh, she, uh, earlier in her career, was a member of the European parliament. So Cecilia Malmström, a pleasure to have you with us today.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much.
0: And I am joined um, by Peter Rashish, who is director of the Geoeconomics Program at uh, AICGS and a senior fellow uh, here. So uh, Peter, um, uh, good to have uh, have you with us today as well. And uh, I'm uh, really looking forward to this conversation because trade is uh, uh, one of the most important elements that unites the United States uh, with with Europe uh, and and it is also among sometimes the most politically sensitive and certainly often the most technical um, issues that we deal with in the transatlantic space so it's a great uh, a great privilege to have this opportunity to go a little bit uh, deeper uh, in 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 these issues let me start off by asking you Cecilia Malmstrom, you negotiated with uh, with the Obama administration with U.S. Trade Representative Mike Froman uh, at the end of the Obama term. You also were the counterpart to uh, Robert Lighthizer, uh, who was the U.S. Trade Representative for Donald Trump. Um, What do you see as the biggest change uh, in U.S. trade policy from the Trump administration to the the current uh, administration of President Joe Biden?
1: Well, I think there's definitely a change of tone, the rhetoric and, and the sort of way we, we talk to each other with predictability and, uh, you know, informal, but also informally, that's a, lo- a lot of difference. And even if it's only it, it's indirectly related to trade, of course, that it was a very appreciated in Europe and in the rest of the world, I think that the first step by President Biden was to rejoin the Paris Agreement. Uh, So that signalized that he wants to work with the world, he wants to work in international organizations, multilateral uh, level, uh, and that was very welcome. And of course, we've seen during uh, these months, uh, you know, small steps towards trying to identify concrete areas where we can cooperate in the vast trade field. Uh, There will not be a relaunch of the TTIP negotiations that, that I led for several years, at least not in the short term or even medium term, uh, perspective, but at least I think there are some things we can do. But policy-wise, of course, this administration hasn't changed much on trade. It is a rather, say, protectionist administration with a big caution on trade agreements in general. Uh, there's been a strengthening of the Buy America notion, uh, for instance, and, and that has has been noted in Europe. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so um, so you see small steps, but not a sea change. Um, in the U.S. approach.
1: Yes, I would say that, but it's still early days in the administration and I know that nothing dramatic will happen before the midterm elections anyway, so let's see Mm -hmm. after that.
0: And uh, among those small steps, I imagine you might count the the steps on the Airbus-Boeing dispute, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps the OECD agreement on a corporate minimum tax um, uh, also, more recently, uh, an agreement to um, uh, you know, to waive the tariffs on aluminum and steel um, uh, that uh, had been implemented under the Trump administration. Um, do you see those as potentially a broader transformation of the approach to global trade?
1: Well, I hope so. I hope this is a, a, an ambition to, to work closely with allies such as the European Union. Uh, The the agreement or the preliminary agreement on the digital tax in OECD is, of course, a huge success for for the whole world. Now, it's not really done yet, but if it were to be concluded, this would be historical agreement. And, of course, the change of administration in the U.S. is very instrumental in that that agreement. Um, The Boeing and, um, and Airbus discussion has been a conflict, actually, for, I think, 18 years. It's filling a whole room with papers in Geneva, in WTO. So it was good that there is a suspension of of tariff and that there is an agreement to try to find a a solution to this very, very long dilemma where both continents have sinned and we've made errors, but but we we need to to solve this. On the tariff agreement, it's a preliminary agreement because it's not really solved yet. Uh, We have uh, still TRQs, tariff rate uh, quotas. and um, well, we need to find a definite solution, but but it's a first step. And we're talking, and we're trying to to identify a way forward. And I think that is very positive. And then, of course, we have uh, the first meeting and the creation of the Trade and Tech Council with all its working group, and that is also an important step in the right direction. I think.
2: Well, let me uh, pick up on that. The so on the one hand, we've seen the. Uh, alleviation of some long-standing disputes, but then the the new uh, EU-US Trade and Technology Council is something different. It's it's not. It's it's more positive, more forward-looking. I think it's fair fair to say it's something that's uh, institutional. Uh, I hope you know one can hope in a good way. Um, so it, it, it's only had one meeting, but it's planned to have another one sometime next spring. What do you think should be at the top of that agenda? And are you are you optimistic? that um, the the Trade and Technology Council can set transatlantic trade relations on a new footing?
1: Well I think it's a very first important step. Of course we've had these uh, transatlantic councils in the past as as well and uh, they haven't made dramatic um, policy changes but it has been a forum where we can discuss things of mutual interest and here it is much more institutionalized than before with the working groups and an agreement to try to work on very concrete areas like investment screening, export control, WTO issues, semiconductors, artificial intelligence. I mean issues where both Europe and, and US realize that we need to work together because we need to set joint standard, we need to have a joint policy there and there's also prospects for for the future. I, I think this should be developed by focusing on results not just Talk, talking but on results and also setting standards uh, as well because if we not set, if we're not setting the standards in future technology and so on others China will set the standards and it's much better that we cooperate on this. And this has been the logic also behind the TTIP negotiations, that we should be standard setters and not standard takers. And this is something that is welcomed very much by business on both sides. It's a little bit technical and tricky. It's not politically super sexy, but there's a lot of money involved that you can save. And it's it's concrete stepping stones for for a deeper and and more closer relation. And you need to build trust as well, because trust was lacking during the last administration. So you need to take these concrete, uh, a bit formal steps in order to rebuild a strong partnership.
0: If I could follow up on that, because there's a little bit of tension between, on the one hand, the institutionalized nature of the TTC and the the rather technical um, uh, Mm -hmm. focus of the working groups but, and also the results that you talked about. Uh, And if we look at the context of of trade, which uh, for the broader public um, has become more salient, I think over the last five years um, and also more contentious, Um, Mm -hmm. is 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 there a problem that maybe the TTC is not political enough
1: well, I think this was the only way to get it started. I, I mean, the first meeting there were three secret, uh, state secretaries from, from the, the including uh, state secretary Blinken, and there were two vice presidents from the Commission. I mean, this is high level, and it was prepared in advance by, by high level officials in in both administration. And I know that they are working very closely uh, with each other in order to try to deliver what was agreed and to prepare. Uh, future discussions, but as long as it is, you know, transparent and, and uh, inclusive. And I know from the European Union side, and I think from the US, uh, but, but I don't know the details, we have, uh, the, the commissioners have involved civil the society, they've had public um, meetings to try to explain what's going on, they publish a lot of, of background material on the website, etc., to be transparent. And of course, reporting to the European Parliament and to all the ministers of the European Union. Uh, and that is necessary in order to, to make sure that, that, you know, this is nothing strange happening here. We are working uh, according to what we have agreed, full transparency, uh, full full disclosure. Uh, And that is the only way to build trust in in trade. That was also very apparent during my time as trade commissioner that that there's a lot of of emotions in trade. So we need to de-dramatize it, but we also need to listen to people's concern and and make sure that they have a voice.
2: Well, you've spoken a bit about Uh, U.S. trade policy and also uh, U.S.-EU trade relations. What about uh, the state of EU trade policy, which you were responsible, of course, uh, for until 2019 as trade commissioner? Do you see steps like the new anti-subsidies tool or the proposed anti-coercion instrument as signs that the EU uh, believes it needs to take a more power-based Approach to trade policy. Do you see this as a big change from uh, from from before, or, or how, how do you see the future of EU trade policy?
1: Well, uh, I think these steps on anti-cohesion instruments and so on is a way to, to level the playing field a, a little bit. So the European Union, twenty seven countries have have a unique open internal market, where also third countries have access and they can, you know, bid on on public procurement and services and so on. But, But that is not exactly the case in other countries. So, uh, and, and European companies are, are discriminated in some countries. Um, so this is a way to, to level the playing field and to make sure that, that you know, there are rules that should be expected. We want to be open. We want to be, be you know, ready for, for, for an investment and, and cooperation, but the rules need to be followed. And that is also why EU is pushing so hard for reforms in the WTO. We can come back to that a little bit later. But on the other hand, trade policy is one of the most powerful instruments that the EU has because this is something that is joint, the commission is responsible, Mm -hmm. and trade policy is also a way not only to facilitate trade and and to take away tariffs and regulations and administration, but but you build bridges, you you, you sort of create deeper alliances. So it's a very powerful foreign policy instrument that we have with countries such as Canada, Japan, Singapore, uh, Vietnam, And I hope that the European Union will continue to ratify agreements that are made with Mercosur, the four countries in Latin America. That would be a very powerful alliance, for instance, with Mexico. And negotiations are quite advanced with Chile, New Zealand, uh, um, Australia, uh, for instance. So so I hope that they will not be a step back from that, because those have been very beneficial economically for the European Union, but also created alliances where cooperation can be extended to so many new areas as well.
2: Of you, course, yeah. Go ahead, Peter. No, I was just going to say that you you use the phrase "level playing field," um, and um, that um, might be also one way, to, one lens for looking at the something really an emerging uh, issue in trade, which is the relationship between uh, trade and climate policies. Uh, and uh, we saw in this um, this this at least partial resolution of the US-EU uh, uh, tensions over steel and aluminum, we saw a, an effort by the two sides to, um, to um, uh, take a more cooperative approach to set up a, uh, a two-year period where the US and the EU would think together about Chinese and other overproduction, but also steel production that is, that is climate unfriendly. Uh, and and this happens of course, not too long after the EU announced um, in July that it will introduce um, by fully introduced 2026, the world's first um, climate driven trade measure with a carbon border mm-hmm. adjustment mechanism or a CBAM. how do you how do you see this 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 moving to the forefront of the interaction of trade and climate policies and, in particular, um, how do you see what the U.S. and the EU can do together to help um, help reconcile trade and climate uh, objectives?
1: Well, I think this is a very important area of potential cooperation. You mentioned a few steps that has been taken on steel and overproduction. For instance, that, that is good. Uh, need to be concretized, of course, and follow up. But that's very good. And... Uh, we need to see how we can work together on 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 carbon. I think there is a general agreement among international organizations, OECD, so uh, IMF, the World Bank, a lot of economic think tanks, that taxing carbon is is one of the the, the most successful ways to reach the the goals that we have jointly uh, set. The question is, of course, how you do it. And the and I know that there are discussions ongoing in in Congress uh, as well on fees and and taxes and and and, and different ways uh, to move and in many other countries as well. What the EU has proposed, and it's a proposal by the Commission, so of course it is still a proposal. It will have to go through the Member States and the European Parliament, and that's usually a process that can take one and a half year or or something, because this is complicated. You need to do, how do you do it in practice? And I hope that during that period that the legislative process goes on, that the EU will engage very closely with partners such as the US and see how we can Uh, avoid this becoming a trade tension because we want to achieve a a goal. We want to tax carbon. We want um, dirty industries to become more more carbon emission neutral. And we want to to address some very specific dirty uh, uh, sectors such as cement, steel, aluminium, fertilizers, etc. And we have the same goal. Uh, And and it would be very unfortunate if this led to to a trade conflict where we were to, to tax each other when actually we have the, the same intention, so I hope that during that time we can have a dialogue and see how we can work together and not, uh, so it doesn't, ideally of course we would have a, a global agreement, but I'm not naive, I know that this takes a lot of time, even if it is discussed in the WHO, so maybe WHO can eventually have some responsibility and role in this, but we're not there yet. Um, but but the idea of of taxing carbon at the border i think is a good idea now we just need to make sure that that, that it works uh, as intended as well and i know that these discussions are ongoing on the highest level between the eu and and uh, president biden and his
0: you know you you uh, you talked about uh, how the the eu and the united states will approach these matters and of course uh, the european union's largest uh, member state uh, germany is uh, is how we occupy a lot of our time here at AICDS. And, and as, you, as you know, there is a government uh, about to take shape in Germany. In fact, mm-hmm. even just be a matter of days um, before we see a coalition agreement and, and a government lineup. Um, what would you look for, what would you hope for uh, in the approach of the next German government to, to trade um, issues? Should uh, How should they be uh, trying to strengthen the EU's role um, in the global economy? And and what should they be pushing for, in your opinion?
1: Well, that remains to be seen. As you said, I'm, I'm, I'm quite positive that very soon we will have a government in, in, in Germany with the three parties now very advanced in their coalition talks. And, and of course, there are three um, very pro-European parties, parties who are, are also very committed to the transatlantic uh, friendship and, and partnership and uh, the, the future Chancellor Mr. Schultz is a well-known and respected person in Europe, but I think also he has lots of contacts in, in the US. I, I'm, I'm quite confident it will be a, a good strong uh, government and that the policies will not differ so much from what we saw before. Of course there are different parties, it's a coalition three parties, but the um, but, but there will not be huge uh, change, uh, I, I think. On trade, it remains to be seen because Germany is, of course, a very, very trade-dependent country with its big uh, car industry and and um, technical industry and chemical industry. So it needs trade agreements. It needs to to, to trade, uh, and they realize that. On the other hand, with a very strong green party in it will have to be cautious as well to have the the green dimension of trade and to see how trade can contribute to to, uh, uh, achieving the the Paris Agreement and the United Nations goals on this. Uh, So we will see how they define it uh, in detail. And CBAM, I mean, member states agree with it in principle, but the exact architecture of the proposal will remain to be seen. And there Germany is, of course, a very important uh, player. But I, I would suspect that they agree with um, not with everything I've said, of course, but, but with the notion that we should talk to our American friends to see what we can do jointly and try to avoid a big clash here.
0: Right, and, and of course, you know, when, we, when we talk about China, which I think we'll probably come to in a mm-hmm. moment, um, you know, Germany is uh, among the most you know, entangled uh, economically with China. Um, and, and so in that way, it puts it in some respects at the leading edge of the, the dynamics in uh, the EU approach to trade policy. So um, could you say a little more about how you see that, uh, in particular, the, the German-China uh, connection, and how does that set the, the agenda or the constraints, perhaps, for the EU's approach?
1: Well, that, that is one of the things that remains to be seen because Germany is very dependent on, on trade with China and has traditionally one of the countries who have sort of more sought dialogue with China, not confrontation. But uh, both the Liberal Party and the Green Party in the coalition have now said that they want a tougher line on China, especially on the human rights issues and that, yes, we should, of course, trade with China. No German politician can say we should not trade with China, um, but, but that we should also be, be, be tough on, on the human rights aspects and, and the forced labor in the Xinjiang province and so on. And this is also an area where I think there is a potential if we tread carefully, a potential area where we can cooperate uh, with the US uh, on on this. Uh, Because of course, if we are united in putting pressure on China, I think it's much bigger um, prospects of success there. there. But uh, foreign policy is a policy where 27 countries need to agree. Uh, So it's tricky and, and it will always be more difficult to formulate a very, sort of stringent policy vis-a-vis China uh, from the European Union side and from the US side, uh, of course. But but I think we are approaching. And for instance, the the new legislation on investment screening, where we worked very closely with Treasury, for instance, under the the, um, Trump administration was an area where we had constructive um, cooperation. And it has led to a shift in opinion in the European Union where where countries admit that maybe we've been a little bit naive vis-a-vis China. On the other hand, we need China if we want to solve the climate issue and we need China if we want to reform the WTO. China needs to take a responsibility. So it's a very fine balance there. And um, I hope that Germany will play its leadership in that. But but of course we we need to have all the 26 other countries on board. Uh,
2: Next week, of course, we have the World Trade Organization ministerial conference. Um, and um, while I think that um, you know, everyone's realistic about um, what might come out of that, uh, it's, there, is, um, there are questions about um, the future of the multilateral trading system and uh, you know, where the, where realistically the WTO uh, can be reformed uh, and where, you know, the US and the EU together should put their efforts. Um, if you had a magic wand, um, you, know, you know, that you could wave over Geneva, uh, what, what, would, what would you like to see come out of the, of, of the ministerial conference?
1: Wow, there's so much to do actually to to reform WTO. So, so the list is is very long. I mean, everything from the internal working methods to the decision making and and making sure that we can move on with some plurilateral uh, agreements and also ideally WTO taking a stand and a, a role in both health, so that we are better prepared. Uh, for the next pandemic and that, that, that vaccine and medical equipment can circulate easier globally, but also on the climate issue that we discussed a couple of minutes ago. But, but I'm, a, I'm a realist, so I don't think all this will happen uh, in, in, in Geneva uh, shortly, but hopefully a few stock takings to see where have we made progress, maybe some declarations on, on health and, and climate. And in in the best scenario, we could also have an agreement on on some sort of working program for for reform. That would be a very good outcome uh, if member states uh, agree, because we can identify the areas where we need to reform, but we also need to put together a sort of reform program to take stock at the next ministerial, for instance, or halfway. Uh, That would be very good if if that came out. Um, And then I have a special uh, soft spot for, for the fishery, as agreement where we've been negotiating for so many years to try to have an agreement to stop subsidies and illegal subsidies on, on fisheries. We're almost there uh, and well, with my magical wand, I would wand, I would push a little bit so that there is an agreement, but, but I'm, I'm not sure we will get there in only, well, there's only 10 days left, or a week.
2: Let's see, maybe you have some magic there. Um, but continuing with the WTO, um, Uh, One of the areas, I think it's fair to say, um, where there was some decent cooperation both across the Atlantic and more widely under the previous administration was uh, something that came out of the Buenos Aires ministerial conference that you mentioned, the trilateral initiative among Mm -hmm. the US, the EU and Japan, which mostly had a focus on Subsidies, the role of state-owned enterprises, and as well as some other issues intellectual property, technology transfer. So mm-hmm. now, just a few days ahead of the um, ministerial conference in Geneva, the three sides have announced that they're going to relaunch uh, this trilateral process. Uh, we don't have a lot of detail about what that will entail, but they plan to do that as in, as part of the uh, as part of the WTO ministerial. You mentioned, you use the word plurilateral, you are in favour, if I understand, of, of, mm-hmm. of more plurilateral initiatives as a way to move the WTO forward. Um, do you think that uh, it's important for the these three economies to put something like that on the table soon uh, for uh, for the future of the WTO?
1: Absolutely. I think that can play an important role. Uh, I was in Buenos Aires when we launched these discussions uh, around the table together with the Japanese Minister Seko and, and USTR Mr. Lighthizer. And we had actually very uh, constructive discussions. We met regularly, several times a year, to try to achieve something. And we were, I mean, we produced some, some, some quite solid um, cooperation on, on subsidies. And we also worked on forced technology transfer and, 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 and other areas. And, of course, that that needs to be sort of, you know, you need to involve the the greater membership at some stage as well on this. But I think that the, the Japan, EU and U.S. can provide some leadership in showing the way how these reforms should be made. And eventually we need to engage China because they are one of the countries who really needs to do these reforms. And it is in their interest as well. China has gained enormously from WTO membership, and it is in their interests that the organization still functions. Um, so we, we, we need to work with them, but that's at the later stage. So relaunching these negotiations and sitting again, trying to identify what can be done and starting uh, from those three to a plurilateral. And then eventually we will see that that's very important. We need to see the details of, of what has been decided, but I think this is excellent news.
2: And um, would you be uh, willing to speculate on which countries the, the, those three economies ought to uh, you know, invite in as uh, part of the next uh, wave to be part of the avant-garde on, the, on, this, on these issues?
1: Well, there was a reform group led by, although it's still there, led by Canada called the Ottawa Group, where we have uh, the, the EU, we have uh, Brazil, we have Singapore, Costa Rica, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Norway, several others, Mexico. The U.S. was not there at at that time. Um, But but this is a group of friends of of the WTO who could be involved uh, as well. But then at some stage, of course, China needs to be involved because we cannot expect them to sign the dotted line of something that everybody else has agreed for them. So, so of course, they they need to be there at at a stage. But but, uh, let's first see what this new round of of trilateral negotiations come, come up with.
0: Right. Well, this has been a really fascinating uh, discussion on some of the most consequential uh, issues in the transatlantic uh, partnership. And uh, I'm so pleased, um, Cecilia Malmstrom, that you've uh, spent time uh, to, to go into some depth uh, with, uh, with us. Um, you know, we have had your previous counterpart, Mike Froman, as a guest on this podcast as well. Uh, and so it's been uh, terrific to, uh, to kind of continue that, uh, that tradition of, uh, of, of deep analysis of international trade, and especially between the United States and the European Union. Um, so I want to thank you for being, uh, being our guest today. And uh, for all of our listeners out there, uh, stay tuned for the next uh, episode of the Zeitgeist from AICGS. And for those who want to read more and learn more uh, about Cecilia Malmström's views on US-EU trade, I would also direct you to an article uh, recently uh, co-authored Uh, with Chad Bone of the Peterson Institute, which you can find uh, at the website of Foreign Affairs magazine. So uh, thanks so much, Cecilia Malmstrom.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
0: All right. And we'll be be back in touch with all of you again soon. So thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org, or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Al Wiedersehen.